0: if you'll uh, take your bible and turn to luke chapter 4 if you haven't already i want us to begin looking together at uh, luke chapter 4 verses 1 through 13 and it's going to take us a couple of weeks actually Uh, but we're going to begin to look at luke chapter 4 and the temptation of jesus Uh, because this is an important moment in the bible uh, in history Uh, an unusual moment you don't have many other times described in the Bible, where Satan is directly tempting someone. And so we're going to try to look at this closely, and we're going to be talking first about the context for this temptation and the setting of the temptation, and then in the weeks to come, we're going to be looking more closely at the nature of the temptation itself. And I'm excited because this is one of the absolutely defining moments in the life of Jesus. The ministry of Jesus, and actually in the the history of of the world. It's big. You have Satan, this supernatural evil being who seems to be the most important supernatural evil being, the head of all the rest, opposing Jesus. So that is big, just, just what's happening. The timing indicates that it's important as well. It happens at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, pretty much the, the first thing after the baptism that we're told about, before he calls any disciples or preaches any sermons, he goes into the wilderness to be tempted. We'll, we'll see that temptation itself is clearly significant. It happens right after God calls Jesus his beloved son, and it has to do with Jesus's identity, really. Is he going to be an obedient son? Uh, We know it's important because it's in three of the four Gospels. It's uh, one of the only events we have in the Gospels where the testimony about it had to come straight from Jesus. And by that, I I mean he literally had to tell them about it because there weren't any witnesses. It's kind of a, a famous part of the Bible, I think. I don't know for sure, but I would guess that most people who are familiar with the Bible at all or who have been going to church for a while would be familiar with the story of Jesus in the wilderness being tested by the devil. But even though it's important, or maybe maybe because it's important and famous, it takes a little bit of work to really understand what's happening here. And so this is another one of those Sundays where you're going to have to to work with me because this story about Jesus is connected to a longer story about what God is doing in this world that begins way back in the Old Testament. So there's a context to this. There's a, a context for this temptation that's important we don't miss. There's a reason it happens here and now in the Gospel of Luke. And so I thought we could begin to understand that context a little by just thinking about the idea of temptation. So uh, we're, we're going to start with something that's familiar to us, temptation, because there's a part to this context for what's happening here that is not going to be as familiar. So we'll start with what is familiar, uh, because we know temptation, we're, we're familiar with temptation. A big time. We've all been tempted. And the truth is that we've all, at one point or another, fallen to temptation. We've given in to temptation. Temptation is, is powerful. It's, it's amazing how powerful temptation can be. And if you want to obey God, it sometimes is discouraging as well. Our, our struggle with sin goes deep. And so there are desires in every one of our hearts that we are ashamed of. And there are times where every single one of us is tempted to give in to those desires, and it's intense. Sometimes even though we know what is right, and even though we know the consequences of doing what is wrong, and even though we hate sin, we, we, we hate that sin, we don't agree with that sin, still there are times where we seriously think about disobeying God. And there are times when we do. Temptation is powerful. It's so powerful that there are a lot of people who don't think it's possible to overcome it. Many people, even maybe most people. And, it, and it's kind of funny because we're Americans and so we're like, hey, we can do anything except for overcome temptation. We, we don't think we can do that. And we have to come up with explanations as to why. So in Africa, where I was in Africa, people would say a person acts a certain way because they're cursed. And that just made sense to everybody. That was their explanation. I remember someone who struggled with alcohol, and people were convinced it was because he had been cursed. It was, it was so hard for them to overcome. They must have been cursed. Here, though, we don't say cursed. That doesn't make sense to us. We would say they have a physical problem, right? If someone struggles with something they don't seem like they can overcome, that the Bible classifies as sin, almost automatically a lot of people would be, well, if you're going to call it a problem, The problem's physical, and you don't even really need to check with your doctor (laughs) to be able to say that. I, I can never have gone to a doctor, gotten one medical test, and have a problem I'm giving into in my life, and say to a group of people, it's because I was born this way, or it's my genes, or it's a syndrome of some sort, and there would be a lot of people who would agree. That would make sense to them. And if you've struggled with temptation, you understand why people have to come up with explanations like curses. Or blaming their bodies because it feels like slavery sometimes when you're being tempted can I can I actually say no to this I don't think I can I really don't think I can it feels physical it's strange you know how there can be something you don't want if you're thinking straight you don't want that but even though you don't want that you want it if you know what I mean it's strange how there's something that you know is bad and wrong for you, and you can still deliberately go out of your way to do it. Temptation is powerful. That's what I'm saying. There's no question that temptation is powerful. That's why we come up with explanations like those. And, and part of the reason temptation is powerful, of course, is because of the effect of the fall on our bodies and on our souls. But that's not the only reason the struggle with temptation is so powerful. It's a big reason, but it's not the only reason. One of the reasons temptation is so powerful in our lives, one man explains, is precisely because temptation is about something bigger than our lives. In other words, we're small and unimportant people. We, we know that. But what happens in our lives matters. What happens on this planet matters. Matters. And what happens in our lives matters because we are part of something bigger than ourselves. There are evil spiritual forces in the universe. And I believe that, first of all, because the Bible says that. And I'm not smarter than the Bible. But also because of the way the world is. It seems obvious there is more going on than just evil people doing evil people things. There are Evil spiritual forces, they are real, and they hate God, and they hate people, and temptation is an assault by those demonic powers on God and on his kingdom and on his people. We are involved in a cosmic spiritual battle That's why the Bible talks about spiritual warfare and why Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Which is why the Bible sometimes uses military language to describe our life as Christians. It's a fight. We're involved in a cosmic spiritual battle. Which, of course, we see here in in Luke 4, as Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. But this battle begins way before that, all the way back at the beginning of the Bible, in a place called the Garden of Eden, which is an important part of the context for Jesus' temptation. Before we can understand Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, why it happens, what is going on, We need to go back and understand Adam's temptation in the garden. Because that's part of the context for what takes place between Jesus and Satan. This story about Jesus is connected to a longer story about what God is doing. And to understand that story, you have to go back in your mind to the very beginning of the world where you'll see God creating this beautiful and perfect place, and he's making this, and he's making that, and he's declaring it good, and he's getting the world ready for something, for someone, for us. God makes man, and he makes man unique, the Bible says. He makes man in his image, which means, you might say, that man is the crowning achievement of God's creative work. And we see God's love for man, In that he blesses man by placing him in this garden where he could experience God's special presence, the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 2, God takes man and puts him in the Garden of Delight, literally. Where he could enjoy God and know God and walk with God and experience the special presence of God. The garden really was the world as it should be, a place where everything functioned the way it was supposed to function, and God, and God placed Adam there to serve him, you might say, like a priest in that garden sanctuary. And having blessed man, God gave man a purpose, and that purpose was to exercise dominion over the earth, which is the language of rule and authority. While God alone is king, God gave man the privilege of ruling over this planet, you might say, in his place, or or maybe better, as his representative. God's plan was for man to govern the world on his behalf. And through man, as one author writes, divine, God's rule, was to radiate to the ends of the earth. Or as another person explains, as Adam and Eve worked and kept the garden and as they were fruitful and multiplied, the plan was that Eden would grow beyond its current boundaries and the glory of Adam and Eve's royal rule would increase. And more importantly, the whole earth would experience God's special presence and be filled with the glory of God, which of course was a huge responsibility. And perhaps because it was such a huge responsibility, in Genesis we see that after having blessed man... And after having given man a purpose, God also gave man a test, telling him that he could eat from every tree in the garden except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this test seems kind of simple to us, but it was a significant one. First of all, because the question really was whether Adam, man, would submit to God's rule. Would he trust God enough to obey God? And second of all, because Adam... Was serving in the garden as mankind's representative, our representative, which meant that Adam's actions would affect us all. And of course, unfortunately, we know Adam didn't represent us well because almost immediately after God gave man that warning, Adam was tempted by the serpent, whom we know from later scriptures was Satan himself, to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And although Adam was created without any flaws, this test for him was a moment of decision. And he failed. He absolutely failed. And there were consequences, not just for Adam, but for us and for the entire world. You might say that Adam, by listening to Satan in the garden, in effect handed over the authority that God gave him to Satan and drove his own descendants into the wilderness where they would constantly experience temptation From the devil and demonic forces. And the Bible records a number of the different consequences of Adam's sin, but one of the specific consequences, God says, was enmity. Enmity, which means a state of active opposition between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And that's Genesis 3:15, which is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible because it sets the agenda. It says there is this great battle going on between Satan's offspring and Eve's offspring which explains, like I said, the powerful nature of temptation. At the root, part of the reason temptation is so powerful is because we're not living in the garden anymore. We're, we're living in the wilderness now. We're involved in this cosmic spiritual war. There's a battle going on between Satan, the followers of Satan, and Eve's children. Which, for, for most of us, I would imagine sounds fairly frightening, or, or at least it, it should if we took it seriously, because it means we are caught up in a war against dark spiritual forces. And yet, in spite of how badly we've broken this world, there's hope. And this hope starts again way back at the beginning of the Bible, not in us and what we do for God, but in God and in God's grace, because Just before God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden and into the wilderness, he gave them a promise. A promise that one day the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, which is plural, that's us, but now singular, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And that's a a promise about an individual who would, by God's grace, be the answer for the sin introduced by our first parents, who would, by God's grace, be an answer to this struggle that is bigger than us and greater than us. And this answer, God says, will come through the descendant of the woman. In other words, God promised, Lane Tipton explains, to, to give Adam and Eve and their descendants a champion seed, a Messiah, a mediator, one who would come and destroy the works of the devil. In the middle of judgment, in other words, God shows mercy. He covers over Adam's sin and shame and guilt and nakedness with an animal sacrifice, with the garments of an animal who was given in their place as a substitute, and then you remember he. Drove Adam and Eve east of Eden, and he guarded the entrance into Eden and into the tree of life with a cherubim and a flaming sword that was looking every direction, which was mercy because it meant that man wouldn't be doomed to live eternally in his fallen condition. And yet, it also meant that in order to gain life, the life that was somehow symbolically bound up with the tree of life, Adam and Eve knew that one would have to pass under that sword, would have to face the wrath and judgment of God. They, they knew that this promised Messiah would crush the serpent's head, cover their sin, bear the wrath and curse of God, and gain life for them. And from that day forward, Adam and Eve and those who knew God began looking forward to this great champion seed that God promises. And many, in fact, think that's what Adam was doing by naming his wife Eve, the mother of all living that he was expressing faith in that promise, that even though he was expelled from the Garden of Eden, and even though the consequences of sin was death, life would go on because of God's grace, and that the one who originally tempted man and brought death into the world would be overcome. And we see that it's not too long after God makes this promise that another man named Lamech has a son. And he too seems to wonder if this son was the promised seed. Moses tells us that he called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And at first it seems like there might be some hope because he's a righteous man, and though God judges the entire world through a flood, he saves Lamech's son Noah and his family, and after bringing him through that flood, it's as if the Bible presents Noah to us as a new Adam, a second Adam. Because as soon as the dry land appears, he too is placed in the land by God, and he too is commanded to be fruitful and multiply, after which God blessed Noah the way he did Adam and commanded Noah to exercise dominion over the world, reminding him as he did that man was made in God's image. And there are even more parallels if you want them because we're told about Noah and Adam both having three sons, one of which was a problem and both the stories of Noah and Adam are followed with lists of people, and they both experienced harmony with the animals. And there are some who would even say, if you do your calculations in Genesis 5, Noah is the first man listed who is born after Adam died. And yet the point is that just like the first Adam, Noah and his family fail the test through the fruit of a vine. And end up naked and ashamed and the story of the world once again quickly descends into chaos and rebellion until we find God making another start with a 75 year old man named Abram making a promise that if you look at it is pretty much a direct response to the curses we read about back in the garden and the the best part of the promise God made to Abram was that through his descendants he would bring this blessing to the entire world which is why the Bible spends so much time talking about his descendants, this nation Israel. We read about Israel because they were chosen to be part of God's great salvation plan. You might say that they too were called to be another Adam, Israel. The first Adam failed. The second Adam failed. Now God chooses an entire nation to represent him. And he didn't choose Israel simply for Israel. They were chosen as part of God's plan to fulfill the promise God made to Eve. In other words, they had a special part to play in God's great serpent-crushing plan. They were to be the means through which God would pursue his plan of bringing blessing to the nations. And I'm telling you this, again, because context. I'm trying to give you the context for Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, because sometimes we read a story like this one in Luke chapter 4, and we think it's just about how we can overcome temptation. Like, maybe there's some tips here for me to defeat temptation. And you, you can learn from Jesus about how to overcome temptation, and we'll talk a little bit about that in weeks to come. But it's important to understand first that this story is really about something even bigger than just some uh, counsel for how you can overcome temptation. And actually it has to be if it's gonna give us any hope because temptation is powerful and the effects of the fall are so devastating. We don't just need advice to overcome temptation. We don't just need more teaching. I mean, if that's all Christianity was, I can totally see why people get upset. You are coming to me and you're telling me this and that about how I need to do this and that to overcome temptation, you don't know how hard this is for me. But actually the truth is I do know how hard this is for you. In fact, it's even harder than you think because it's not just about you. There are evil spiritual forces out there as well. And so you don't need You don't just need more teaching. You need a savior first, before teaching is going to do you any good. And that's what the gospel announces. There's a savior. His his name is Jesus. And to understand the kind of savior Jesus is, we have to think a little bit about what happened with Adam first, because Adam, in the garden, is the first key to understanding the context for Jesus in the wilderness, Which is why, you remember from last week, Luke gave us all those names at the end of Luke chapter 3, that long genealogy, right before he talked about the temptation. You remember how it's in such a funny spot between the baptism and the temptation, and it goes backward from Jesus all the way to Adam, calling Adam the son of God. And really, the the reason Luke's genealogy ends like that is to identify Jesus as the end-time Adam the true son of God. And so it's like Luke is saying, you have to think about Adam being tested in the garden as you read what I'm about to tell you about Jesus facing the devil in the wilderness. And you know, not just Adam either. You have to go a step further and think about Israel. That is the second key for understanding the context of the temptation in the wilderness. First, Adam in the garden And then second, Israel in the wilderness. And we know that there's a connection between Jesus and Israel from what God says at Jesus' baptism. So the scene right before the genealogy, God introduces us to Jesus. This is verses 21 and 22. And when God introduces us to Jesus, he quotes himself. God uses language to describe Jesus that he's already used before. And, And I think this is so cool because follow me. God chose Adam and put him in the garden, and then he gave him a responsibility, a test, and Adam failed, the first Adam. He didn't exercise dominion over this world as God's faithful, obedient representative, and so he was sent into the wilderness. But it's not like God just threw up his hands in despair, as if his plan failed. He he had a plan to glorify himself by filling the earth with his image bearers who would represent him and reflect his glorious presence and attributes. And so after the first Adam failed, he chose Israel. Why? Why did God choose Israel? This is where we're headed. Exodus. Because after giving the big picture in Genesis and showing us the cause of the problem and pointing out the solution and giving us hope about the seed and telling us it would be through Abraham's descendants and even proving that he could keep that promise, that he could reverse the curse through what he did with Joseph. Joseph is like a preview that God can use a man to turn curse into blessing. Coming out of Genesis, we know that. And so so God can do it. He can overcome death. He can overcome sin. He can overcome Satan. And in the next book of the Bible, we see that as the seed of the serpent goes to war with the seed of Eve, Just like God said was going to happen, at the beginning of Exodus, Israel's in bondage, they're enslaved, and we find Pharaoh wanting to make Abraham's descendants suffer because God had kept his promise, and They had multiplied into a great nation. And so Satan goes on the attack against God's great salvation. And though Israel had only blessed Egypt, Egypt wanted to destroy Israel ultimately because it was through Israel that God would bring the blessing he promised to the nations. But of course, no matter how hard he tried, Satan couldn't stamp out Israel. He only ended up furthering God's plan instead as God remembered the promise he made with Abraham. And God raises up a man to be a mediator for Israel, a man named Moses, and God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and to command Pharaoh to let his people go, specifically saying in Exodus 4.22, and, and you have to hear this, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me, which is Huge. And that's why I'm saying all of that. Because what did God call Israel? The Bible's really an amazing book. You know, people are into, like, Marvel and all of that, and, like, they'll do all kinds of research to figure out, like, who did Thor come from, and he's just, like, totally (laughs) make-believe. Like, you can, we can work to figure out the Bible. It's an amazing book. There's so much going on here. God here is calling Israel his son. He, He calls them what Luke called Adam. Only in Exodus it's his firstborn son. And so as we as we saw Adam was a son of God and he was placed in the garden and given a responsibility from God and a test, but he failed that test and he was cast into the wilderness as a result. And so God chooses Israel to be what? His firstborn son. And God rescues Israel out of slavery. And you remember that that great moment when he delivers them? Through the sea, in order to place them in the promised land where they would experience what? His special presence. You read Exodus, and it's like God is going to take his son Israel out of the wilderness and he's going to put them back in a place that's like what? The Garden of Eden. You will bring them, and you've got to hear this, Moses says in Exodus 15, 17, in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which you have established. And I I wonder if you heard that, plant them on your own mountain, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary you have established. Because, and this is so interesting, that's how the Bible in other places describes Eden. Listen to Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 28, 14, he describes Eden as the holy mountain of God. And he's talking to Satan, it seems, there, and he says, You were in Eden, the garden of God I place you. You are on the holy mountain of God. And so look at this, because the point is, God chose Israel, and God rescued Israel through the sea in order to plant them in what we might call a new kind of garden of Eden. Why? So that they might do there what Adam was supposed to do in the original one. As someone has explained, God's ultimate goal in creation was to magnify his glory throughout the earth by means of his faithful image bearers inhabiting the world in obedience to his divine command. And after Adam's sin, God didn't give up on his great plan. Instead, he kept pursuing it by calling Abraham and forming this great nation Israel, revealing his plan, which was to restore his broken and ruined creation through israel to bring blessing to the world and to accomplish that he rescues them from slavery and yet as as we read the book of exodus we see that before god brings israel into this new kind of garden of eden he first takes them through what the wilderness where what happens they're tested so, so the first Adam was driven from the garden into the wilderness. And therefore, it makes sense that this second son, Israel, would then have to be tested in the wilderness before they can enter in and enjoy the garden. And if you look at what God says to Israel, the promises he makes them, it's remarkable in that it's like he promises to reverse the curse if they obey. He says things like Exodus fifteen twenty six. If you'll diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eye and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then he says things like Leviticus 26. If you obey, then I'll give you your rains in their season and the land shall yield its increase and the trees of the field shall yield its fruit and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in the land securely and I will remove harmful beasts from the land and the sword shall not go through your land I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you I will make my dwelling place among you and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people which sounds an awful lot like Garden of Eden language. I mean, I will walk with you. That's totally Garden of Eden language. This is God enabling Israel to be his image in the world and to exercise dominion and authority over it. But again, like with Adam, there's a responsibility. They must diligently listen to the voice of God and do what is right in his eyes and keep his statutes and observe all his commandments. And and what's really beautiful is the reason why God was doing all this, what was the purpose We find it in Exodus 19, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, get this, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And and that's important. This is getting exciting because it's helping us get a sense of what God was going to do through Israel. Because what does a priest do? A priest intercedes with God on behalf of the people. He represents the people to God, and he represents God to the people. And what we see way back at the beginning of this nation Israel is God, that God intended to have this nation Israel, all of them, serve like priests, interceding with God and representing God on behalf of who? Who were they priests for, Israel? On behalf of the nations. In other words, Israel didn't exist for Israel. As a kingdom of priests, Israel is called to represent the nations before God, to mediate God's redemptive purpose in the world, one man explains. The fundamental purpose of priests in Israel was to represent the people before God through their sacrificial and intercessory ministry. Yahweh here summons Israel as an entire nation to act as priest, a mediator between him and the rest of the world. In priestly service he expects Israel to pray for, love, minister to, and witness to the nations. And and that's the point. This entire nation was to live in the middle of God's presence and were to become like priests standing in the presence of God in his temple and reflecting his glorious light, like go-betweens for the nations living in darkness and apart from God. And so if Israel would obey God's voice and keep his covenant, God would bring them into a new kind of Garden of Eden, and he would fulfill his promise to Abraham and bring blessing to the entire world, in a sense, doing what Adam was supposed to do and didn't. And yet, and I hope you're sticking with me, I know it takes a little bit of work to follow the story, but if you're familiar with the book of Exodus, you know what actually happened was that after God delivered them from bondage, like Noah, through the water, and brought them in the wilderness to be tested, just like Adam in the garden, they completely failed to trust and obey God. And so it wasn't long after God delivered them that they started getting upset because they didn't have enough food to eat, and so they grumbled against God, and they actually said they wished they had just died in Egypt, and God in his mercy rained bread down for them with one rule attached This is the test, that they only take what they needed for each day, showing that they trusted him. But, of course, they didn't listen. And it's just a little while after receiving the manna where God meets them on the mountain and he gives them instructions, the first one being, you shall have no other gods before me. And they agree and they promise to serve him. They make a covenant with God. And yet when Moses goes up on the mountain by himself and they were left by themselves with Aaron, what's the first thing they do at the first sign of trouble? They command Aaron to make them gods, and they they bow down to those gods to worship. And then sometime later, when God brings them to the brink of the promised land and gives them all kinds of promises about how he would go before them and destroy their enemies, the spies go in and they see the people living in there, look strong, and they become afraid and refuse to obey God. They completely failed the test, Israel, and because of that, God wouldn't let that particular generation enter the promised land. Instead, they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. One year for every day, the book of Numbers tells us. And unfortunately, you know, even after that, when when God did allow the next generation to enter the land and they were faithful, it wasn't long after that next generation of Israel that their descendants forgot God and turned away from him over and over and over again. And so as we read the Old Testament, And Israel's story, we find them hardening their hearts time and time and time again to the point where they had, even though they had this great commission to be the servant of God by being a light to the nations and fulfilling the promise God made to Abraham, they end up completely failing in their mission and becoming like the rest of the nations really when finally just as Adam was expelled from the garden, the Old Testament ends with Israel expelled from the promised land as well. The the, the Bible begins with Adam failing in the garden, and and the, the story part of the Old Testament ends really with Israel failing in their garden of Eden as well, which is a problem for Israel, but it's also a problem for us, because God chose Israel to bring his blessing into the world. And yet, sometimes as you read their story in the Old Testament, you might think that God would just give up on his great saving plan because of the way they kept failing him time and time again, and yet what actually happened was that while God judges Israel, sending them into exile, he also gives them a promise, like he did with Adam, and it's a promise that he would restore them and bring the blessing that he promised to the world through them by sending a Messiah who would accomplish what both Adam and Israel could not. So do you see what's happening? We're almost at the temptation. That's why I'm going through all this, because Adam and Israel are like categories or pictures, and they provide patterns to help us understand Jesus. So this is the context. With with Adam, Adam was the first man, and he represented us all in the garden, and he failed, and we're all experiencing the consequences And then God chose Israel to be like a second Adam, and they were supposed to obey God and as a result bring blessing to the entire world, and they failed as well, which I'm saying at first sounds hopeless because it's like, who can represent us? Who can represent us? Because a man who was made perfect originally can't. Adam can't in that perfect garden. And then Noah couldn't either, the most righteous man in the world after God's Judgment with just him and his family in a world that's been cleansed. He can't. And then Israel even, a whole nation, an entire nation, delivered by God in such a radical way, trained by God, experiencing the presence of God, failed. It seems hopeless. But it's not, because throughout the Old Testament, God promises that he would send someone who would represent the nation Israel all by himself. And you know in the prophets, God takes all of those promises that we read in Exodus and Leviticus and expands them, makes them greater. And one of the places you see that most clearly is in the book of Isaiah, in the second half of that book, in a portion of scripture that's sometimes called the servant songs. This is Isaiah 40 to 55. And stick with me. I I promise we're getting to the temptation, but this is big. So I'm still providing some context. And I know we've talked about these servant songs before, But if you get a chance to read them, Isaiah 40 to 55, you'll find that they're a little bit confusing because sometimes it's like this servant that Isaiah is talking about is the whole nation of Israel. And then other times it's obvious God's speaking about just one individual. And it's like it goes back and forth. And I think that's because there's a connection between the nation of Israel and this great servant, specifically in that the Messiah that God was promising was coming to be the fulfillment of the promises God made about what he was going to do in the world through Israel. In other words, the Messiah would, in a sense, take the responsibilities and obligations of Israel upon himself. And so, where Adam had a commission and failed, and then Israel took on that commission and failed as well, all hope is not lost because God would send a man who would take on Adam and Israel's commission on himself, which is part of what makes this section of the Gospel of Luke so exciting. Because at the baptism of Jesus, God the Father speaks, and when he speaks, he quotes the Old Testament. And one of the passages that he quotes was from that section of Isaiah that we were just talking about, the servant songs. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations, which means as Jesus goes into the water to identify with the nation Israel, he comes up out of the water, and God the Father identifies him as the one whom he sent to represent Israel, this great servant. And then Luke, you know, just so we're clear, after linking Jesus with Israel like that, takes takes it a step further at the end of chapter 3 and links Jesus with Adam, placing Jesus as the son of God directly against Adam as the son of God. Or, or to say it better, he's presenting Jesus not only as the true Israel, but as a second or last Adam. And this is Luke's way of saying to everyone who's been looking and who's been waiting for the fulfillment of the promise God made to Eve, And maybe to those who have been disappointed by the way in which Israel failed to fulfill its responsibility that finally the one God promised has come. This Jesus who was born to Mary is the promised seed that God's people had been waiting for. Since the beginning, the one who would be the last Adam and the true Israel, ultimately crushing the head of the snake, providing covering for our sins, reversing the curse, blessing the nations, and in the end bringing God's people back into the garden, which is the context for Jesus' going into the wilderness and why it shouldn't surprise us to read in Luke 4.1 that after Jesus was baptized, God took him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil because, of course, he had to. He had to, Luke 4, 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And you see there how Luke mentions the Spirit. Jesus, full of the Spirit, and was led by the Spirit. The way Mark puts it is interesting. He, He actually says the Spirit cast Jesus out into the wilderness, which is the same exact language used in the Greek version of the Old Testament to describe Adam being cast out of the garden. And that's to make sure that we understand this is no accident. They're connected. The first thing God does after Jesus' baptism is take Jesus into the wilderness because Jesus, like Adam and like Israel, didn't come just to live his life simply as an ordinary individual person. You might say he's a public person. He's a corporate person. Just like Adam existed to represent us, and Israel existed to accomplish something for others, God sent Jesus to redo the story of Adam and to fulfill the story of Israel. And so what makes this story of Jesus' temptation so exciting is that we're not just watching another battle. There is something bigger going on. As we read this story of Jesus' temptation, we're not just watching someone go into battle for himself. We're not even just watching someone show us how to fight a battle. We are watching someone go into battle for us. On our behalf, Jesus comes as the last Adam. He comes to be the king who trusts God and who represents God and who establishes God's rule over this planet. And Jesus comes as the true Israel, the one who would bring the blessing of Abraham to the nations. And so as we watch him go to battle with Satan in the wilderness, it's like a little like we're on the hillside with Israel as they watch David go to fight Goliath. Because David fought Goliath for Israel. And Jesus fights the devil for us. And though obviously we know the outcome, we've read the story before, still to get a sense of the triumph of Jesus, we need to think about the context, Adam and Noah and Israel. Because as Jesus goes into the wilderness to fight with the devil, he's not the first. We've already seen Adam go and come back defeated. And we've already seen this entire nation, Israel, go. And come back having failed and so now there's Jesus and we're watching him go up and he's fighting for us and we know how it turns out of course but try to get an even better feel for how great a victory this is by thinking a little more closely about the setting of this temptation the context is the Old Testament that makes this battle matter the setting highlights the intensity of the scene for one thing there's the devil Luke 4, 1 and 2. Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And and you know who the devil is, but I mean the devil. This is no ordinary enemy that Jesus is going up against. The the Bible calls him by different names. The slanderer, the accuser, the prince of the power of air, Satan, Lucifer. This is a, a being who's been warring against God almost from The beginning of creation and from the beginning of creation he's been trying to stop God from keeping the promise he made to Eve in the garden of Eden and I'm sure at this point in the gospel of Luke he sees Jesus as his greatest threat and so he comes to wage war against him in the desert and while we don't know much about the devil we do know the devil is pure evil and that demonic beings do have power If you struggle with the idea of the devil, you have to ask, you have to think about, why do I struggle so much with the idea of the devil? Because to be honest, not every culture, again, struggles with the idea of the devil. So it might be that you struggle with the idea of a personal devil, not because you're so sophisticated and have just come up with this on your own, but actually because you're submitting to the authority of your culture, which tells you there's no such thing as a personal uh, supernatural evil being. Obviously, I I don't know these things on my own. It's the scripture that tells us about the devil, this demonic being who has this kind of power. And I don't think we can imagine going up against someone as wicked and powerful as the devil, which is why we should be so interested as Jesus does because he's going up against the devil on our behalf. He is battling the devil in the desert on our behalf. And I say desert because that's what the wilderness was like. It was a dry, uninhabited, empty place made up mostly of rock and sand. And those who have been there describe it as incredibly bleak. It pretty much is the definition of desolate. It represents in the Bible everything that's painful and difficult, all the misery of this world. You might say the the desert is the anti-Eden. It is a picture of the sin-cursed world after Adam fell. So if you look at the Setting, Jesus is battling the most fearsome enemy in a place that represents all that's difficult in this world, when at this point he has to be weak and tired because Luke tells us he hasn't eaten for 40 days. Tired, hungry, weak, alone, the last voice he heard was God's. If if we just look at the setting as it stands here in Luke, this is intense, but we can get a better idea of how exactly epic this is by comparing Jesus' temptation with Adam's. Adam was in a garden, the best imaginable place, John MacArthur explains. He was in Eden. He was in paradise. Jesus was in the most desolate, forsaken, and dangerous place in the Judean desert, barren and empty. Adam lived in a sinless world, a sinless environment. Jesus lived in a sinful world. Adam never had known any temptation, Adam fell at the first temptation, which means there was no prior assault to try to break down his resistance. Jesus has had 30 years of temptation, and then 40 days of temptation before these final three come, all that attempting to break down his resistance. Adam had perfect human strength. Adam was delightfully and wonderfully fed by all the lush provisions of the garden. Jesus was weakened by 40 days with no food. Adam had all conceivable things to enjoy, never knowing hunger. Jesus was hungry. He was starving. Adam needed nothing. He had everything. He ruled everything. Jesus had nothing, no food, no authority, nothing, no kingdom, no sphere of rule. He's all alone. And Adam certainly had no need to test God to see if God really cared, to see if God really loved him, since he had evidence all around him that God loved him and that God cared. While he was wandering around in the Garden of Eden, Jesus deprived of all that and everything else with nothing but a desolate desert and Satan trying to push him to test God to see if God really does love him. Jesus, with a right to eat as the creator, has no food. Jesus, with the right to rule as king, has no kingdom. Jesus, with the right to divine care and divine protection and divine blessing, is exposed to the severest dangers. And the point should be clear. Jesus didn't fall. Adam did. And that tells you what a vast difference there is between Jesus and Adam. In the best of circumstances, Adam fell. In the worst imaginable circumstances, Jesus said not, this is our Savior. This is our Messiah. And this is the proof of it. Adam, innocent, perfect, rich, lacking nothing, fell under the first assault. Jesus did not, poor, alone, weary, hungry, and he is triumphant. And appreciating that is absolutely critical to the issue of salvation. That is why it's here. It's not just an interesting story. It's the heart and soul of everything because Jesus can't save us from sin and death And hell, if he himself cannot conquer temptation and the devil in the wilderness. And we are rejoicing as we look at this text because he did. He did. Where the first man failed, the second man succeeds. In the God-blessed garden, Adam fell. In the God-cursed wilderness, our Savior. Jesus won. And I want you to hear this because this is at the very core of the good news we proclaim as Christians. Christianity is good news. It is not just about what you and what you do for God. It is about God and what he's done through Jesus. We are here to tell you that the very son of God became man in order to be tempted and tried and to face the full power of the devil's assault and that he triumphed. We're going to see he triumphs here in the wilderness. We're going to see he triumphs throughout his life. And as we study the Gospel of Luke, we're going to see he triumphs in his death. And God proves that we're going to see in his resurrection, ascension, and exaltation. And so listen, listen. We're not here to simply say, try and be better. Why not? We're not here to, to just come to you and say, I know temptation is difficult. Let me give you some good advice about how to overcome it. We are here to point you to a Savior who stood in man's place and won, and to call on you to trust him and enjoy the victory that he's won for you. And so look, because this is important, I don't know what temptation you are struggling with today. As you come to church, you've got your temptations. They're those areas where you know God wants you to obey but you feel like you can't overcome. I don't know your temptations, but I do know they're powerful. They probably feel so powerful. And the very power of those temptations should tell you, it should prove to you, that struggle should should prove to you that if you're ever going to be right, you don't simply need somebody to tell you what to do. You don't simply need a religion that comes and tells you how to clean yourself up You need someone who's willing to go to battle with the devil for you. You need a hero. You need a hero. And and one of the reasons Jesus is so beautiful and worthy of your love and affection and obedience and trust and worship is because he is that hero. He did. God took his son Jesus into the wilderness because his plan is for Jesus to deliver you from the wilderness and bring you back into the garden but better. Because he's not just going to fix things up a little. He's going to reverse the curse, God. He's going to purify the universe. He's going to make the world absolutely perfect. And he is going to establish his son as king over it all. He is going to fulfill the plan he made in Genesis 1. He is going to complete the promise he gave to Abraham. And to do that, Jesus had to obey. Jesus had to defeat sin. Jesus had to die. Jesus had to rise again. Given how seriously Adam's sin has broken this world, given the reality of the supernatural forces of evil, that's the kind of savior you need. And that's the kind of savior that Luke's proclaiming Jesus to be. Repent of your sin and trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, I... This is a big story, and I, uh, once again, I'm here at this place where I just pray I didn't get in the way of the story you're telling your people, and I ask, Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would do the preaching now as we leave this place, that you would remove everything from our minds that's distracting, and you would focus our minds on, on this gospel message, and that you would... Reveal to us in a crystal clear, only you can do it kind of way who Jesus is and the kind of Savior you've provided for us so that we might be filled with worship and filled with a desire to obey him. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name.